You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome everyone to our Gospel Reflection, in which we commemorate the fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. There's much to to look at here from a historical, uh, geographical, kind of contextual background here to the parable which is given to us today in Luke chapter 8. So let's just open our Bibles right away and take a look at Luke chapter 8. We're going to focus primarily upon the gospel today because various uh, eparchies are using different readings, and so we don't want to get too confused. So we're going to focus primarily on the gospel account today maybe make just a couple of of comments about the possible epistles. Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, verse uh, 5. Luke chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord said this parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside and was trodden underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And other seed fell upon the rock, and as soon as it had sprung up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And and other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other seed fell upon good ground and sprang up and yielded fruit a hundredfold. As he said these things, he cried out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But his disciples began to ask him what this parable meant. And he said to them, To you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but the rest in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, and those by the wayside are they who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, that they may not believe and be saved. Now those upon the rock are they who, when they have heard, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, but believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell upon the thorns, these are they who have heard. And as they go their way, are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not ripen. But that upon good ground, these are they who, with a right and good heart, having heard the word, hold it fast, and bear fruit in patience. When he had said this, he cried out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Fathers, we usually do, let's take a look at the context here in the Gospel of Luke, where this parable fits in in the, in the context of the other parables that Jesus says in, in the context of the whole Gospel itself. So the parable, we hear it here, we also hear it in Matthew's Gospel. This is given toward the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He has been preaching to the same people 
same crowds. This is a very small piece of geography, as we're going to talk about in a second, and, and as uh, you and I have experienced a number of times, very small area. And so Jesus has been passing through these various areas, these various towns, preaching the gospel, teaching for three years, for three years. And there are certain individuals who have left everything and, and, and followed Jesus. There are those who are, who are his disciples. And where he goes, they go. And but then there are lots of people who have listened to Jesus as he passes through the region and go about their business as if nothing happened. Their lives are not changed. They're not affected by his word. The seed, does, the seed that is his word does not implant in their heart and change them. So they go back about their business uh, doing these things again. And it's, it's quite dramatic here for the, the audience what Jesus is doing. He's just begun to speak in parables. Up to this point, Jesus has been speaking relatively clearly. Matthew's gospel, the disciples, we hear them actually ask, why do you speak to them in parables now? Right? It, it's confusing for them. So Jesus has just begun to speak to them in parables. The, up to this point, every time Jesus passes through the area, this, this particular region, he's preaching to them. The locals are all farmers. You and I have been there. And, uh, and, and these are wheat and barley fields up in the hills there. And so they've heard Jesus preach and teach. And they go about their business again. And he comes through and he preaches and teaches. And again, they come and listen. And they go about their business. Nothing's happening. And so what's happening, the cares of the world and the various things, they're, they're uh, at the rocky soil, the thorns, the birds, as Jesus lists out, are taking the seed out of their heart. The seed is not, is not doing what it was intended to do in the hearts of many of these. I'm going to cut you off and jump in there. I apologize for that. But I think it might help. Uh, our, our listeners to kind of see where this took place because it'll give a little bit more uh, kind of incarnation or be able to vi visualize being there. It's so important when we're forming this kind of context in which we want to understand the gospel so that Jesus can speak not only to those present but to us also that we can stand there in some sense in the in the shoes of the apostles and the other people that are standing there and really understand. I think oftentimes, especially with the gospel like this, we've heard it so many times that it just becomes like, um, well, yeah, rocky soil, of course, it doesn't grow anything in rocky soil, and this doesn't, you know, but, but, but here I think it's going to be interesting to our participants um, to see what the area looks like. So I'm going to share my screen um, and uh, see if I can make this, make this slideshow work here for you that I put together. So can you see that, Father? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very this, good. This is this is the town of Capernaum here, um, and as you can see, there's there's a number of little bays. The bay that we're looking at is actually just south. Last last week, we heard the gospel of Jesus getting in the boat, speaking from the from the water, preaching from the from the water, going out there and telling them to throw the net into the other side and so forth. And that was probably taking place right in what you see here. But here's the bay of the parables, and Capernaum is just. I'm just going to go back up here. It, that bay of the parable is just on the other side of this slide. So we're just going to go to south on the, on the uh, coastline just a little bit there. And there you can see the bay. It's a natural amphitheater. Um, in fact, I was reading in a book by an archaeologist who was in this area and studying the gospel. And, and he, he was talking with one of the farmers that owns the area, not right here, but actually on the other side of the road, up on the hillside. He said 
that when uh, the, it's not uncommon for you know people to come into this area with their boats and do some fishing and even today and he says when they're there and there's people speaking with each other in the boats he can hear them even though they're just speaking in regular terms he can hear them up on the hillside because it's this natural amphitheater and the the voice really carries you and i father jumped in the water right here remember that we swam out here right and i well in fact regarding the voice remember it was just the two of us standing there and we were in the water talking about this bay and the parables and remember that farmer who was up in those fields we see those trees drove down with his jeep to see who was there in the region and when he saw it was you know two guys talking down there in the water uh, he then drove on, but he could hear us mm -hmm. way up there among those trees. And the two of us were just talking and, you know, right. what you'll notice here, uh, for our, our participants is how fertile this land is. This is all fruit trees and is wonderful, wonderful. And even down here, it's very rich, the soil, but, but it changes from a rocky soil to a, to a, um, I, I, well, here, I just to give you a little context here. Here's the J Jordan river. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Capernaum right up here. And it's just south of that. So now you know where, where this is taking place. But you can see how that rocky area versus the fertile area. And that you say, well, that just looks like a normal beach. It's normal. Yeah, it is. Except what's unique about this area is that normally along, this, along a, a seashore like this, that rocky area will extend way far out. But here, the, the rocky area and the fertile, rich soil is just right there next to each other. So Jesus, you can kind of see it there a little bit better maybe where it's that area, but Jesus is really um, kind of almost looking, pointing at the ground or the people are standing, one standing on the rocky area, one standing on the fertile area. And so they can see kind of incarnationally, they can see what Jesus is talking about as he's preaching. So I'm sorry, I cut you off, Father. I, you can go ahead and go now, but I hope that's helpful to our participants to kind of get that vantage point. Yeah, so no, that's that's exactly what I was uh, was was talking about, is that here they are. You can see the hillsides there. You can see this is the region where back then they would have been growing barley and wheat. There are banana trees and other things growing there today. But, mm -hmm. uh, and so these are farmers who who know how to plant these are people who on a regular basis their whole lives their fathers their grandfathers have been casting seed onto the soil they know what's good soil they know what is bad soil they know that there are birds they know there's the path the rocky soil they've been farming this area and jesus has been preaching and teaching suddenly he comes up and crowds gather and he starts to tell them about farming practices and you can imagine these farmers listening, having heard over and over, and suddenly, you know, what's he talking about? He, he's telling us how to throw seed on the ground. We know all about this stuff. And then they walk away. And the disciples then say to Jesus, why, why are you talking to them in parables? They, they don't understand. What, we don't even understand what you're talking about. What's going on? And, and that's the problem there. They, 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 the seed has been, been, been planted and then planted in their hearts. And they themselves have been the rocky soil or the soil that's been then uh, attacked by the birds and the thorns and thistles. You know, when we're reading this gospel in its context, and we can see like the political movements, the Herodians that are kind of plotting Jesus's arrest, all of this kind of the undercurrent of the gospel, it makes a world of difference to be able to start to understand. It's not that Jesus just decides all and start teaching in parables, but there's, there's a reason. 
And, uh, and uh, here in the gospel, I mean, he, Jesus explains the parable, so there's not a lot that we need to say about that, except that there is a line here I think is probably pretty challenging for a lot of our participants. And maybe for those that are our San Diego Bible study and others that are really following along, you might want to push pause after I ask this question. He says, but his disciples then began to ask him what this parable meant. And he said to them, to you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. And he goes at the very end of the gospel, he comes back to this theme and he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's almost like Jesus is saying that he's intentionally causing. I remember this is very similar to uh, in the, the book of Exodus, talking about Pharaoh's heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It seems as though he's, um, that he's, he's not only predestining some for the kingdom, but, um, but he's got this Calvinist idea of a double predestination, that he's, he's, he's actually predestining some not to receive the word of God, that somehow Jesus doesn't want some of these people to be saved. And, um, and here, I, I know you're going to take us back to the Old Testament here, I'm sure. It's so important that we know the Old Testament and that we allow Jesus' words to be contextualized as they would have been for the hearer of his day, and not go off and just interpret on our own what we think a text means, but rather allow that Old Testament background to do exactly what it's supposed to do. So, Father, please, if you could just comment on this and give us that background that those hearing would have had. The, uh, this is an extremely important point. The, the, the common... A uh, common statement among all modern commentators on New Testament books, when they set out to describe the audience, the intended audience of, say, Mark or Matthew or one of Paul's epistles, all modern scholars agree that the authors of the New Testament expected their audiences to know what we call the Old Testament, like the back of their hand. They had the thing memorized. And... And that's the problem then, right? The, the, the New Testament, the audience that was hearing these books and these stories is an audience that is not too different from the apostles themselves. We're talking about a, a different world in which people had the stories of salvation history memorized. They, they sang not you know, songs of Elvis or Snoop Doggy Dog or whatever people are singing today, they sang the Psalms. They sang those to their kids when they were at work. They hummed and sang the Psalms. Uh, when, they, when they told stories to their kids, when they tucked them in at night, they told the stories of salvation history. They told them about Noah. They told them about Moses. They told them about David. When they had to give their kids a lesson about how to be good you know, to the neighbor kid and how to grow up and be a good uh, husband. Or they picked stories from the Old Testament, and those were the stories for them, and they told those stories. And so these people knew the Old Testament, like back then, they knew all of those stories, and they could recite huge sections from memory, especially the Psalms. So when we come to something like this, this is a great example. Jesus quotes right out of the book of Isaiah. 
you know, when people hear it today, they don't notice that that's a quote from Isaiah and don't know Isaiah or the context. And so wouldn't know what Jesus is trying to say here or necessarily even know the immediate context, as you said, about the, the problem of the Galilean ministry and the, and the, uh, and the situation within where the geographical context. But let's turn back to Isaiah, I think, and take a look at that because I think it's very helpful here. So Isaiah. Is that in the uh, Old Testament, Father, or New Testament? That's usually it's in an Old Testament, okay, in most Bibles. So right in the middle of your Bible, guys, right in the middle of your Bible. That's what, that's what I was saying. If you just open up your Bible right in the middle, you'll be somewhere in the prophets or wisdom literature. And so if you're in wisdom literature, fast forward, you'll get to Isaiah. If you're in the prophets, rewind a bit to the first of the prophets listed in your Old Testament, not the first of the prophets chronologically, but in your con in your um, canon, that is Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 6 is where we'll begin, and then we'll come right back to it as well. Isaiah chapter 6, the quote comes from this passage in Isaiah 6, which is one that I think most people are at least vaguely familiar with. This is uh, where Isaiah looks up. He's in the temple. He looks up. And he sees the ceiling opened up. He sees the heavenly temple. And he sees God enthroned as the king of the universe. This is important for Isaiah at that time, right? This is when, uh, when Ahab is, uh, is not listening to his directions. And, and the uh, Assyrian Empire is starting to move into the region. And the northern kingdoms of Syria and Israel are fighting against Ahab. And so... The question is, who is going to control this? all of this? Who's, in, who's ultimately in control? Who is the king? Is it Ahab? Is, or is it the king of the Assyrians? Is it the king of Syria, king of Israel? No, it's the, the one great divine king. So this is where he hears, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's important for that context. We also know this passage because... This is where the, the coal comes down and touches Isaiah's lips and prepares him to be able to preach. I'm not worthy, and so the coal comes. And we sing this, of course, in our Byzantine tradition. We sing this, the priest says it after receiving communion, and we often have it as a communion hymn there. Verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. The fathers of the church saw that as a, a type for the Eucharist. But... Uh, the next section is something I think most people are a little less familiar with, and that is verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. There's a popular Roman uh, Catholic song built off of this. Here I am, Lord. And he said, Go and say to this people. So God says, I need someone to send to tell my people about what's happening. And Isaiah says, I'll do it. And he says, all right, here's what you're going to do. Go and say to this people, hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat, that is, you know, uh, unable to work, and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, Lord? How long do I have to do this? And he says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without men. So until the coming destruction. So why would God do this? He's sending Isaiah so that the people will not hear 
Well, no, it's the context of Isaiah. Isaiah is not, as I mentioned when we turned to this book, is not the first prophet God sent. He's one of a number of prophets who have been sent to the people to prepare them for what's happening, and the people have not listened. He sent Amos. He sent Hosea, Hosea. He sent, at this time, he's just sent uh, not only Isaiah, he sends Micah, Zephaniah. So prophet after prophet after prophet is being sent to these people, and they're all saying the same thing, but the people aren't listening. And so if we turn to chapter 30 of Isaiah, we get a little commentary on this. Why does God say this to Isaiah? And therefore, why does Jesus say what he says? So Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 30. Verse 8. Now, Go write it before them on a tablet, inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So God says to Isaiah, I want you to write this, when I, this particular thing, I want you to write this down so that people will know it in the future. Right there, we get a commentary on the problem, right? Don't just preach it, Isaiah, because no one's going to listen. When you preach it, they will be standing there, uh-huh, mm-hmm, but they're not going to remember it. So this, we're going to have to write some stuff down here, Isaiah, because no one will have listened and, and comprehended and memorized what you said and passed on the future generation. It will be lost unless you write down. It is to say it's not going and implanting in their hearts, just like the problem of the parable we saw. He says, so write it down so that for the future we'll have a record that I told you this. Verse 9, for they are a rebellious people, lying Lying sons, sons who will not hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, as the prophets, see not to the prophets, prophesy not to what is right. Speak to us rather of smooth things, right? easy things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more of this Holy One of Israel. So the prophets have been coming and preaching to a people, but the people don't want to hear it. And for us, that might sound a little strange. Why, why, would, they, why would the Israelites say that, the Jews at the time? Well, when we think of the Pharisees and, the, and, they're, and they're following the law of God carefully in the New Testament, it's very different what's going on in this context. In this context, the people of Israel have fallen into polytheism. They're worshiping all sorts of pagan gods. They're not keeping the law. They're not keeping the Passover. They're not keeping the Sabbath. They're not keeping the Pentecost. They're not keeping the festal cycle. The temple has been turned into a pantheon filled with images of false gods, Moloch and whatever else. And so the people have completely turned pagan. And God sends to them the prophets to tell them, if you don't change your ways, if you don't repent and return to me, then I'm going to cast you out of this land just like I cast out the pagans that were in this land before you. If you become like them, then I'm going to do to you like I did with them. Cast them out. Cast them out. And so, so God says to Isaiah, you go tell these people what all the prophets before them told them. You're going to say the same thing. But as you prophesy, you're going to prophesy in parables. Now, Isaiah does this in chapter 5. He uses the parable as well. Lots of parables. And in these parables, you get the very same effect that we get in, Matthew, or in, in Luke's gospel there in the, in the story. 
where Jesus is now preaching the same thing he's always been saying, but now he says it in parables, which are now a little cryptic. And for us, we know the code that, uh, that breaks the, right, gives the answer. Oh, well, now I understand what he means. The word of God is the seed and the birds. Okay. But if you don't have that code that the disciples get, if you're just the crowd who is listening to this, He's telling them about farming practices. It's like walking out and saying, by the way, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Okay, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Oh, by the way, when the rain comes, it usually falls downward, not upward. Oh, interesting. What's he talking about? So he's telling them things that they've always heard, they always have known, right? These, these farming practices, but embedded in that parable is what he's always been preaching to them. But in the process of telling it to them in a parable now, it's a commentary, a prophetic sign of the problem of the day. They're hearing and hearing and hearing the seed. The seed is being cast and cast. Uh, you've done this. I've done this. I just did it the other day. I was broadcasting grass seed on a hillside near my house to keep some erosion down from when the rain comes. So I'm broadcasting this seed, clouds of seed going out and falling nice and evenly onto the soil. Jesus has been doing this with his word for three years, but there's only a few bits of grass sprouting up here and there. And there's the problem. You know, it says back there in, uh, in Isaiah chapter six that you were pointing out to us, it says, and the Lord will re removes men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an, or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Okay, there's this, this sense, and it's, it's so important, fathers, you're, you're re bringing us back to Isaiah. It's so important for us to remember that, that standing on the Sea of Galilee that day are a bunch of guys who know quite well that um, the situation that Isaiah is preaching it about is still very much a reality in their lives. When, Lord, right? when, when is the Messiah going to come? When is the restoration going to finally happen? And I think we lose sight of that oftentimes today as we're reading our, uh, the gospel, that we disconnect the gospel from its historical context, which is why we are always going back to context, from its historical context. And the most important historical context is the issue going on at the Babylonian exile. As you were talking, I flipped over to Nehemiah chapter 9. You, you guys don't have to turn there right now. I'll just read it to you. You want to write it down, chapter 9, verse 36. Behold, now this is after they've returned from Babylon. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that thou gavest to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. This reality and realization that though the people of God have returned, they remained under a foreign rule is um, a, a powerful uh, influence upon what their thinking was that during that time. I mean, all of us know that the Jews of Jesus' time were struggling with Roman oppression. They're all looking for the Messiah to come and to free them from that. But what I don't think we realize is the connection between that oppression and the oppression of the Babylonians and the connection with the Babylonian exile. The reality that was present at that time was the same reality present at the time of Christ. It extended on. 
And therefore, the people of God are certainly looking for the restoration with the words of the prophets ringing in their ears. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah, we have to pay attention because the people of God at that time are certainly paying attention. They're certainly hearing uh, uh, Jesus in that context, or at least they're looking for the Messiah in that context. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah, it's, it's very much confirmation for those who are following him to read and to see his actions in their, in their context. And, you know, and, and how, how um, fitting that is for our own time. All of this that Isaiah was saying uh, that you are pointing out to us um, about, you know, we desire to hear those smooth words. D don't upset our life. Don't, don't make uh, Christianity into something that would cause us to, um, to, to change what is, what is in our life. We want a certain kind of comfortableness about our, about our faith. And how fitting that is also in the context of this Sunday in which we celebrate the fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council um, and their condemnation of iconoclasm. Um, and maybe we just spend, just in our concluding moments here, just a minute or two about that situation that was going on at that time um, at the, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council at Nicaea. Um, in the context of this gospel in which we have a, 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 the leaders of the church coming together um, challenged by very much as, as the uh, followers of Jesus were challenged by the Herodians, challenged by those who had, um, who had uh, uh, political backing, military backing to go about the Christian empire, destroying the sacred images, the icons, um, you know, I, I regularly on this Sunday share with my community, you know, it's not that we're just remembering these guys that got together. This is a reality in our own life today. Imagine your, 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 your favorite icon in your church. You go and pray in front of every Sunday. Um, there's a beautiful icon in St. George in Sacramento, um, the Theotokos Searcher for the Lost. And it greets you right when you come into the narthex of the church. It's so beautiful. Um, imagine that icon being scratched out and thrown into the dumpster in the back parking lot. Um, and uh, the, the remembrance of these men that came together that had that seed deeply planted in their hearts. They had gone through persecution by the government, by other uh, so-called Christian leaders and so forth. It's a real, uh, these were real men that, that defended the true faith, the true faith that Jesus spoke about that day on the Sea of Galilee. But uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Father, just if you could comment a little bit upon this heresy of iconoclasm, what was going on there at this, at, in the years leading up to the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Well, context is everything, as you said. So the, it's, the heresy of iconoclasm is a heresy that develops from a misreading of Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not have any idols that you will bow down and worship. The, in the Ten Commandments, 
God had told them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me, and don't be making any images of them. The Hebrew word there, pesel, image, in, in the Greek translation, idolon, idol. Uh, it refers to pagan religious imagery. God tells them, you shall not worship false gods, and yet better not be making any images of them to worship either. It's all one thing. It's all one package. Of course, they're not going to listen. In a few chapters, the golden calf, they're going to do that very same thing. They're going to say, behold, the God that brought you out of Egypt, and they're going to make an image of the God Apis, the golden calf. So we can see in a direct application, or at least con a contradiction of what God was commanding there at the Ten Commandments. So that command was always understood in that way, a condemnation of idolatry, of paganism, polytheism, idolatry, those, all the, that first section of the Ten Commandments. That uh, was the case also among the Jews. Many people think the Jews are iconoclastic. They don't like religious imagery. Uh, the, the sanctuary that's, that Moses built uh, is given direction to build just a few chapters later in chapter 25 of the book of Exodus uh, is filled with religious imagery. Cherubim, the golden cherubim on top of the ark and all of that. Uh, Solomon's going to build the temple. And we see the record of that in 1 Kings chapter 6. And there again, the temple's filled with religious imagery. Uh, the golden calf was nothing compared to the 12 life-size, or probably larger life-size, uh, bronze oxen that Solomon built to hold up the, the bowl of purity. It's massive, massive images of oxen. What's the difference with 12 massive life-size oxen and a little golden calf? Well, one is idolatry, pagan, an image of a pagan god that they were saying had brought them out of Egypt. Uh, this, the images of the 12 oxen, as we hear, are to represent, this is in 1 Kings 6 through 8, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and that they are to be pure, like this bowl of purity being held up. So religious imagery is throughout ancient Israel's world. It's, it's something that, that God commands them to have. It's important to have religious imagery. But there have been those who have misread that commandment. And the first major instant of misreading that commandment comes in Islam. Islam is iconoclastic from its beginning. And Islam, Muhammad, they're iconoclasts. And so when, when they came to a region and conquered a region and conquered a, a village, a Christian village, they would destroy the religious imagery and turn that building into a mosque, which was usually plastered over the icons, got rid of the icons, destroyed them, and, uh, and you know, and wrote, you know, sayings from the Quran on the walls. So, in fact, Hagia Sophia is a great example of that, right? Although today, thank God, there's removing the plaster, and we're seeing the old, the ancient iconography. So, that was, that was Islam, and Islam then influences Christianity. And so, what we have is, tragically, is then iconoclasm then becomes a heresy that develops within among the Christians as well. In that early stage, Islam, as Heller Belloc said, is really a Christian heresy. Islam comes out of, of Christianity and Judaism, that region at the time. So it influences, and the people are all mixed in together, and so it ends up influencing the Christians. The Muslims, before they would take over a region, if they couldn't take it over, they would go pray in the churches. And so they were intermingling with the Christians and commenting on, on various things. 
And the Christians eventually, many Christians, fell to this heresy. It spread all the way up to the emperor. We have emperors who are iconoclastic. And so what they started doing, as you said, is removing the iconography from the churches. They would, they would plaster over them, or they would take them off the walls. They would destroy them violently. They would burn the icons. And the faithful, thank God, many of the faithful, even though a lot of the clergy, priests, deacons, bishops, religious officials of all sorts, government officials, even all the way up to the emperor, iconoclasm spread over, but the people, the people knew there was something wrong. The people knew this is not the faith of our fathers. And so the people, before a church was destroyed by these iconoclasts, the faithful would take the icons and hide them, hide them in their houses. And then, of course, thank God, the Seventh Ecumenical, was, uh, Ecumenical Council was called. And at that council, the clear definition of what Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, was proclaimed again, that this is a condemnation of idolatry, not of religious imagery. The Judeo-Christian tradition always had religious imagery within it, not idols, but religious images to help us see with our physical eyes, physical things that then tell us something that we can't perceive with our physical eyes, things that are spiritual, immaterial. Uh, and, and this is what the declaration, the beautiful declaration for the Seventh Ecumenical Council was all about. You know, what you're, what you're touching upon there, Father, is that this is not just a defense of having, you know, painted images on wood, but it's, it's a, a fundamental declaration of uh, the, the nature of God and the nature of his interaction with us. The Synaxarian for this Sunday says this. Uh, it says, it was not simply the veneration of the holy images that the fathers defended, but in fact, the very reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. And let me take that one step further. Because of that incarnation, because the taking to himself our human nature, then, as St. Peter says, it is possible for us to become partakers of the divine nature. You know, as the deacon incenses around the church on Sundays, the priest incenses uh, the icons, he also incenses the people, which tells you something very important. Uh, first of all, that we're not offering incense and worship of, of, of mere men, uh, nor, God forbid, of pieces of wood. But the reality that we see before us, and that is the transformation of our humanity and the transformation of the entire created order by God's life. The incense which is offered before the icons and before the people is a recognition that this one in whom we see is the, the image and likeness of God has been restored in them. We see in them the image and likeness of the Lord himself. This is why in the Slavic tradition, uh, Galatians chapter 2 is, is read, in which St. Paul says those beautiful words, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And therefore, Therefore, when we see an icon of St. Paul, we see a revelation of Christ himself. Similarly, in the Greek tradition, the epistle which is given to us today from Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, two things are mentioned. First, it says, have nothing to do with factious men. 
have nothing to do with factious men. Speaking of those who are going around causing problems in the church, both at the time of St. Paul, uh, but also now at the time of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, causing divisions within the church. Um, and then the epistle goes on to say, let our people learn to apply themselves to good deeds so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful in the context of the gospel, of course, in which the word of God has come, has been planted in our hearts so that we might bear fruit like those trees we saw on the, uh, on the, uh, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus says the seed is the word of God. And those who are the good ground are they who, with a right and good heart, having heard the word of God, hold it fast, and then bear fruit in patience. It's not enough to simply say, I'm a Christian. It's not simply enough to read the word of God and meditate upon it. But that word must begin to bear fruit in our life, in our actions with one another. May we this Sunday, as the word of God is proclaimed in the church, be counted worthy of being that good soil in which the word of God is planted, like those great men, the fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council at Nicaea, the Second Council of Nicaea, heard the word of God. It was planted deeply within their hearts, and they defended those who had come before them, who had also heard that word, and who are depicted in the icons that are painted in the Holy Church, that we might see in one another the revelation of Christ himself. As St. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.